Hello and welcome to With Relish on the Headstuff Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly food programme who will look deep into Ireland's culinary industry and identity with a focus on the individuals that make it up. Through this series we hope to speak to some of the country's most exciting and innovative chefs, food producers, writers and anyone really shaping Ireland's food landscape. But before we get into this week's offering, let's introduce ourselves and our culinary background. So I'm Aoife Allen, I'm a chef at the Fumbly Cafe in Dublin 8. I've been cooking since I was tall enough to reach a kitchen counter and in 2014 decided to leave my job as a communications manager and start working with food for a living. I'm fascinated by what we eat and why and I think that food is a brilliant way to experience other cultures. As well as working at the Fumbly, I teach a cooking class for people who are homeless and living with addiction. And I'm Harry Colley. I do far less noble work than Aoife. I'm also a cook at the Fumbly. That's where we met. Uh, I've been working in kitchens for the last eight or so years, working in every different kind of catering establishment really. From the very good to the very grand, I've done mass catering where we fed 25,000 people a day and worked in fancy restaurants in San Sebastian in northern Spain. I ran my own small pop-up for two years, did the London and Dublin restaurants scenes for a little while, but I'm most at home in the cafe, where the menu changes daily and we cook whatever we want. There are certain dates on the Irish food calendar that will be on everyone's mind now that summer is finally with us. All sorts of food festivals are taking place countrywide, and with an emphasis on highlighting the best of Irish cuisine and produce. None more so than the Ballymaloo Culinary School's Lit Fest, which has a new focus this year. With an emphasis on getting people talking about their food, it is without a doubt one of the most important gatherings of writers, chefs and food lovers in Ireland. We've decided to focus our first episode on the Lit Fest 2017, and we'll speak to some of its most acclaimed speakers from past and present. The past four years have seen chefs, writers, producers and food lovers flock to the home of Irish cooking each May, and this year is no different. With a focus on education and food literacy, Ballymaloo's fifth annual Lit Fest takes place this May. To speak to us about the history of the festival and what to expect from this year's gathering, Rory O'Connell, Lit Fest director, joins us on the line. Hi Rory, how's it going? Hi, good morning. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Delighted to talk to you. Great. Come here, I wanted to ask you, first of all, about the Lit Fest. How did it come about? It's a fantastic festival that's going on down in Ballymaloo, and we wanted to ask you, you know, where it came from. Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea um, was suggested by a friend of ours who lives in Sri Lanka, who had set up the Gaul Literary Festival after the dreadful tsunami in uh, Sri Lanka some years ago. And he comes and stays with us, Bani Balloon. He said, well, you guys maybe should be doing something um, similar here, uh, given that there was a his- history of writing, you know, in Ballymaloo, and specifically, of course, to do with food writing. So that was really the genesis of the idea. An origin I was not expecting. Yes, yes. Fantastic. And with this year's new focus on education and food literacy, what can we expect to see that's different from previous years? Well, originally, as I said, it was a literary festival of food and wine. It was all about food writing, the great writers about food and drinks of any description. And as the festival has evolved and as our conversations have become shall I say, more focused. Um, and as all of us on the planet become more focused on the sustainability of this piece of land that we live on, we've, the festival, as I say, has sort of evolved from a literary aspect to food literacy. So what food literacy means is knowing about your food, where it comes from, who produces it, where it's produced, is it good for you, is it bad for you, all of those things. So that's the way the festival has evolved. And we're really happy about that and the conversations that will take in respect of it being about food literacy rather than a food literary festival. This is Aoife, Harry's co-presenter. So this sounds like an amazing new focus for the festival, one that's really, really dear to my own heart as well. I'm just wondering, who are you most excited to hear from from all the speakers that you have lined up on this subject? In a way, it's sort of hard to choose, but I mean, got some extraordinary people. Claudia Roden, the great food writer, and really, it's fair to say, use the word icon in relation to Claudia. 
and she's she's been here before she's coming back and she'll be talking about her Middle Eastern cooking and her love of food and the importance of food in her life and she is just a, a, one of the really tremendously important voices in food internationally in the 20th and the early 21st century. Uh, then we have something else we're very excited about. Brian McGinn, who's a producer of the Netflix uh, Chef's Table series, is coming. And some of your listeners may have watched that on Netflix. It's the most stunning and hugely successful sort of voyage journey following chefs, food producers, food lovers in various different parts of the world in their own place. So he's coming to talk about what he does and who knows when he's in Ireland. Maybe he'll see something that grab, that grabs his attention. He might want to come back and, and see something else or maybe film here. Then Joanna Blythman, who's a super important investigative food journalist, um, and she will be here talking about shenanigans, I suppose, that go on not in, 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 some, at, at, in some situations with commercially produced foods. Uh, Robin Gill, one of our own, uh, Robin from Dublin, who's now based in London and his restaurant, The Dairy in Clapham, is well known to many, and he's got four restaurants now. He's coming, but he's going to cook a lunch in Ballymore House, and he'll also be talking in the uh, symposium at the centre of the festival. Um, uh, and the title of his talk is Terrifying Kitchens. So about you know the atmosphere in, in restaurant kitchens and and the importance of them being a really really super place for people to work, full of honesty and kindness, and of course hard work, but not terrifying places. You know that just knock the stuffing out of people. Dr. Ted Dynan is coming from UCC. He was at the festival last year and he will be talking specifically um, about the gut and how the gut affects us psychologically, among other ways, and the wellness of our gut. What is such an important thing? Um, his talk, you know, will be eagerly awaited. Aside by then, a girl called Rebecca Sullivan from Australia and the title of her talk is Food for the Skin which is basically, you know, sort of cosmetic. But she talks about, you know, the ingredients that you put onto your skin, whereas mostly, of course, over the weekend, we're talking about the ingredients you put into your tummy. Uh, Vitinus Androkaitis, um is coming from the EU. Um, he's the commissioner for... Um, uh, food safety and his particular talk which is towards the end of the festival is titled To Eat as a Political Statement and in a way the title of that event sort of illustrates the way the festival has gone I mean I could yeah. go on for half an hour telling you about all the people who are coming it's, Well it sounds absolutely <laughs> amazing there's an, like, an incredible variation of things there and you can see yes. especially with Brian McGeehan I suppose talking about food literacy and just that you know knowing who's making your food and, and where it's coming from and being able to see things the whole way through and I think that what Mind of a Chef really really did or not Mind of a Chef the Chef's Table did was was uh, yeah, really highlight that and just make an absolutely beautiful image. Yeah, they. I mean, they went into it in great depth and it was sort of so beautifully made as well. It was difficult not to be sort of en entranced by it, and that's kind of what we're about. I mean, responsibility is one of our keywords at the festival this year. Our responsibility as consumers. And then, obviously, you know, the responsibility of food producers, the responsibility of governments to keep an eye on the food that citizens are, are being sold in shops. So that's, as I say, responsibility. You know, that word is, is key to everything we'll be looking at over the weekend. But I don't want to make the whole thing sound too serious because there are very serious elements, but there's a lot of fun as well. There's a lot of eating to be had for their tiny little tastes from all the food producers. They're selling their beautiful Irish food or a little tipple of some description, be it either alcoholic or otherwise. There's a bit of music, there's some gentle dancing. <laughs> there's just hanging around. There's lots of good stuff going on. Looking forward on. to the big shed, yeah. Some uh, gentle yeah, dancing. Yeah. Rory, it yeah. sounds absolutely wonderful and you really are kind of covering all bases around food from health to the beauty, the aesthetic of it, to yes. responsibility, as you mentioned. It's wonderful to hear about this new focus. It's absolutely crucial at the moment. Yes. And is there any ideas around spin-off projects or spin-off activities off the back of this new focus on LitFest? Because obviously it's something that's not just to be addressed once a year. Yeah, well, we would like 
to think that what we do, uh, or we hope, rather, that it will inspire some of the, the people who attend the festival to get involved. So there isn't a direct sort of project lined up as a result of, of what we'll be talking about at the fest, but who knows what happens. I mean, for example, Christian Puglesi is coming back from, uh, he's been to the festival before here two years ago, and he's a very famous and wonderful chef based in Copenhagen. Uh, when he was here the last time, he decided after he'd been here, he needed to go back to Copenhagen and to buy a bit of land. Yeah. And he now has cows and he's producing his own milk and he's growing his own vegetables. He's got his own little farm. And the title of his talk, for example, is called A Farm of Ideas. So those sort of things happen um, as a result of people listening and absorbing and being involved at the festival. And we hope that continues to happen as well, of course. You're absolutely right. I think just getting lots of people with the same kind of values and ideas in one space and giving them a chance to, the bit of freedom to kind of have, have at it over the weekend to chat about it. Totally. I remember yeah, the, ab- the first year... Absolutely. I, sorry, Rory, I was to interrupt you. I was saying yeah. that the first year that I was there was the year that Sander Alex Katz came and spoke. And I remember it was just like this very incredible feeling of, you know, rubbing shoulders with your heroes. You know, like there was just a whole room full of people who I really, really looked up to and was able to go up and have yeah. a conversation with and so by going up and meeting and talking to Sandor I went away with that and was just like fermenting all different kinds of things where I had started out he kind of encouraged me to go on and make some of my own fish sauces and things like that yeah. and yeah. Uh, it was just an incredible space I suppose to go and to get very inspired and then to, to disappear into your own world and take what you've learned from that space away with you I think that's one of the things about the festival uh, and the way it's evolved uh, from the very beginning you know there's no VIP area um, and, and, for, and for our delegates who come and the speakers who come from all over the world they just you know, they just free range all, all over the place. And you do actually get a chance to walk up to somebody who you really admire and want to say hello to and say hello to them. And that's really cute. And it's real. And we want to try and keep it real. That's wonderful, Rory. Thank you so much for your time. We're really excited about the lineup this year and looking forward to hearing more about it. Thank you. It's lovely to have a chance to talk to you about this morning and look forward to seeing you in May. Yeah, see you then. Thanks, Rory. <laughs> Thank you, Rory. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Our next guest is one of few people who have successfully turned her biggest passion into a thriving and successful career. Having started her food blog, Bibliocook, in 2005, she's become one of the leading voices in the Irish food industry over the past 10 years. Returning to her fifth Litfest in a row this year, Caroline Hennessy joins us on the line. Hi, Caroline, how's it going? Hi, Harry and Eva. how are you? I'm good, thanks, Million. Come here, I wanted to ask you, at what point did you believe you could make a career from writing? That's a really good question. Um, I suppose I started writing about food back in 2000. At the time, I was working in RTE in the online section as a journalist. And I was involved with a group, a really amazing group of people who set up um, RTE 8, Arts, Culture and Entertainment. So as part of that website, I had a food and wine section. So that was my own. It was it was called Tasty. You know, we went for the original name. Um, so it was... It was kind of ace food and wine slash tasty. So I was the editor of that area. So I wrote for it. I did interviews for it. I commissioned um, chefs to write pieces, write recipes, articles, food articles every week. And I went out with Mike and um, a camera to, you know, produce pieces to go on it. So one of the earliest food interviews I ever did was with Myrtle Allen which is is funny, coming full circle. Mm -hmm. And that was back in 2000. So I absolutely loved working on that website. It was fabulous. And because it was, you know, I was the editor of it. Now I had higher up editor to answer to, but 
it meant that I could say to people, look, I want a piece on this particular grape this week. Or can you tell me how to demystify wine tasting? Or talk to me about, you know, 10 easy ideas for making fast dinners in the evening. So it was that was really great fun. Now, that website didn't last. Um, you know, back in, we started that in December 2000, and I think it lasted a year, and then RTE was hit with, you know, beginnings of of, um, of cutbacks, and we had to rein back in our area. So I stayed with RTE for another few years, but we didn't have a food website at that stage. They revitalized it then a few years uh, a few years later. So that was kind of, I suppose, one of the seeds. I was just, yeah. this is what I really, really want to do. So the editing, and I then, suppose, being able to, to being able to push it in a direction that you were in control of would be exactly. extremely attractive, yeah. yeah. And also being a yeah. one-woman show, essentially, you know, within RTE, it sounds like you were doing absolutely everything yourself. So it's not that huge a leap to go and do it yourself on your own. I, I, would, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but, you know, because I had like there was you now in fairness, um, we had a lot of technical backup because that was at a stage where it wasn't so easy to put stuff online. But also, um, I had some great. I had a great wine writer. I had a great chef uh, called Thomas Herbert who developed recipes for me. But then cookbooks and interviews and things like that—that that was all my area. Mm. But it basically gave me control. And then I suppose when I started the blog in two thousand and five, it was trying to to get back that area, yeah. um, to do things myself, and to and I knew you know the excitement in seeing something through from idea to writing, to publishing it yourself and seeing it up there online. When I started um, Bibliococ in 2005, it was basically started because I'd fractured my skull and I had lost a lot of words. And a friend of mine who had been involved with the, the RTE food website with me back in 2000 said, right, now's the time to set up your food blog that you've been talking about for a couple of years. Let's do it. And she set that up so I could kind of practice my words and practice my writing. Of course, I didn't realize this at the time. You know, I fractured my skull. I was quite oblivious to people trying to help me because I didn't realize I needed help. So that's how, how Bibliococ started off. And I just loved it. Wow. But it also gave me a platform into moving into print media. Um, and into other areas because I could pitch people and I could say, here are examples of my writing and people could look at the blog and see that I could do what I said I could yeah. do. There was like an online CV. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and tell me, how has blogging changed over the last 10 years? <gasps> well, it's 12 years since I set up Bibliocook. Yeah. So at the time, there was no social media. You know, nobody was taking pictures of avocado toast for Instagram. Um, people weren't tweeting each other, say, have you seen this article? Facebook didn't exist. The, the online world was completely, completely different. At the, I uh, wouldn't have been able to set up the blog without my friend Susan, who's a techie, and she was able to do the back end because that area was quite difficult at that stage. There were no smartphones, so people weren't taking pictures all the time and you know, being able to upload them so fast. And also... There was no idea that you could make money from blogging. That was just a crazy thing. You know, the idea that you'd be able to have a career as a blogger in a parallel world to the old world of publishing and newspapers and magazines was was unthought of at that stage. So I suppose the, you know, in, in the States then, because they've always been leading in terms of blogging and in terms of um 
being, you know, obviously they've got much better access to broadband than a lot of us do in the Irish countryside, even at this stage. So gradually that kind of the idea that, you know, your blog could be more than just your online CV or your own personal outlet has crept over. And um, it's it's become a totally different world. It's fascinating. I'm absolutely fascinated with the, the changes and the opportunities that are out there now. Caroline, I'm kind of fascinated by your story here. So I was already thinking it's a brave thing to do to become a food writer having worked at RT for years because, as you said, 12 years ago, nobody knew they could make money from blogging. I didn't realise you were recovering from a serious head injury at the time and trying to relearn a certain amount of language, which in itself is an unbelievable challenge. Blogging, I suppose, is something that a lot of people would love to do. So I was just wondering, could you talk us through a little bit around the process of writing? What's your typical day? Obviously, you work alone quite a bit of the time. So how do you kind of motivate yourself? I had never thought, personally, that I could work for myself. I remember... Um, when I lived in Dublin, before I started working in RTE, I was, uh, I'm a historian by training and I had been trying to write a history book and it was just, and so I was, you know, I had a certain amount of time and I tell you, it was so painful, mm. that writing, that I was willing to go in and scrub the shower with yeah. a toothbrush <laughs> before I get there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know that feeling. Agony, yeah, and absolutely. When I started the blog then in New Zealand in 2005, I was thinking, is this going to be difficult to get my keep myself motivated? But I just used to sit down at the computer and write. I was finding my words again, and I really wanted to articulate them. And because in New Zealand I knew very few people, I didn't have anybody to talk to either. So that was kind of a good motivator for focusing on, on what I was trying to do, which was write about food. And it's never it's never been a problem. I always love to sit down at the computer mm-hmm. and write. The only problem is to try and keep away from all the other distractions. And you know this as well as I do. It's so easy to get sucked into the world of updating Facebook or checking oh, oh, checking your Instagram and all these. So, down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, you have to turn, you have to turn them off. You just you know walk away from your phone and 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 you know set the computer so you yeah. can only write so that's that's what I try to do but okay. it's, it's not easy. You said you were trying to write a history book back in 2005 then you started what turned out to be an incredibly successful blog and then I believe you wrote your first book in 2014 about beer so when you came back to the process then of actually writing a book rather than kind of shorter snappier more um, casual online content how was that for you or was it more that you took that style and put it into a book? Well the history book and you know I eventually did finish it up it was a history of a local area called Churchtown oh. so eventually I managed to wind that up several years later much longer than I had anticipated <laughs> but, but well done for that, that anyway, anyway, yeah. yeah yeah get, get that off the plate mm-hmm. and then I have a friend Kristen Jensen who I set up the Irish Food Bloggers Association with and Kristen and I we've always worked really really well together and in 2011, uh, my partner, who's a Kiwi, set up Eight Degrees Brewing in Mitchestown with his business partner, who's an Aussie. So I spent a lot of time from 2011 going around. I had well, I'd been going to beer festivals, you know, for a long time before that, but never with the same behind-the-scenes view of it. So, you know, I'd been going as a punter and really enjoying them, like the Easter Fest in the Farnwell in Cork was, was an annual fixture. But there weren't many beer festivals, basically, mm. um, at that stage. So 
then suddenly I was given an entrance into this world and not just into the world, but, you know, I got to know so many of the brewers and so many of the people who work in the industry. They're cracked, half of them. Um, <laughs> I can say this with good authority, living with two of them most of the time. But they all have stories to tell. They're all really, really interesting people and they're all incredibly passionate about producing really good beer using quality Irish ingredients and putting it out there to people who think that Ireland is only about one kind mm. of beer. I had that same experience of uh, meeting a lot of brewers when I was over at the Toronto Festival of Beer two years ago. Um, it was in Toronto in July 2015 or so. And it was just that incredible sensation of meeting loads of brewers who I, I had no experience of brewing or brewers before, but meeting a whole load of people who were just like, you know, incredibly good fun because their job is to make beer. Um, yeah. But that they are like really, really into what they're doing and just extraordinarily detailed. And it was kind of like a big bunch of anoraks getting together <laughs> and just like riffing off one another and it was fantastic to be around and just soak some of that up. You're totally right and Anorax is a very nice way to describe us. You know, I'd say we're beer nerds. You know, there's absolutely no hope for us. Uh, but it's, it's just such a great world and you've experienced that. So I knew there were stories there and Kristen, our conversation had gone from being all about blogging and food to, oh, have you tasted this beer or have you checked out that brewery? And then we, we just... Um, decided we'd write a book on it and uh, New Island published that and we did that book that book was written fairly quickly because uh, we signed the contract in January and the book was on the shelves in September wow, of 2014 it's pretty proud yes. so when, <laughs> now, so when somebody gives you a deadline it's easier to not procrastinate I think well that's it a very tight <laughs> deadline and an incredible co-writer because mm. Kristen is a, she's a book editor by trade and she edits a lot of cookbooks so she knows how to keep people on the straight and narrow so yes so that was very very good but it was it was just and it also I'd been doing the research for yeah. years I'd been yeah. checking out this this industry and these flavors and these tastes since the fanwell opened in Cork in in 1998 so I had all this stuff at my fingertip. I was just, you Close know, trying to put of it out there. Yeah. Of, of writing about, I suppose, food and drink at that stage. No, oh, well, years of experience of drinking. <laughs> of drinking, <laughs> which is also lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, it's been so wonderful to have you on the programme this morning. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, no, thank you very much. I hope to see you. Absolutely. We'll see you there. Yes, absolutely. Thanks a million for being with us. Our next guest has been a mainstay of food writing for nearly 30 years. To talk to us about this year's Lit Fest and other events around the country this summer, we have John McKenna of the McKenna Food Guide on the line. So, John, welcome to With Relish. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thanks very much. You've been involved with the Lit Fest since day one. Can I ask what brings you back each year? I don't think there's anything quite like it. Um, I mean, it's not just the fact that obviously there's great food there. But it's the, if you like, the intellectual heft of it. You know, you can go from listening to the greatest food writers in the history of the genre. Um, I mean, Sally this year, for example, will be conducting um, the interview with Claudia Rodan, who, for me, is not just one of the great figures in food writing, but, you know, is one of the most important social and culinary anthropologists of the 20th and 21st century. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got that happening in one room, You've got something else happening down in the cookery school. 
you've got somebody else sort of debating the politics of food in another space. Um, and then at the end of the day, everybody winds up in the big shed having a party. And um, there, there's really nothing quite like it. And one of the interesting things is I think that, you know, the people in Ballymaloo have kind of let it evolve from year one. Um, they haven't really set a structure. They have allowed it to kind of change and develop. So even if you have been going for, you know, the last four or five years, I think every year when you go back, it surprises you really, which is one of the very interesting and fun aspects of it. Um, and I think that's really what makes it unique. It's quite free form. Um, and so even if you are, as I have been from the start, in, involved with it or participating in it, it still takes you by surprise every year. That's that's its unique character, I think. It's a, essentially a new event and a new set of ideas every year evolving with what's happening in the food industry and on that landscape. Speaking of which, there is actually a completely new focus around food literacy rather than food literature per se. Do you feel that Irish people are more conscious of where their food is? Is coming from now than they were 10 years ago and can you speak a little bit to that? I think they definitely are. You know, one of the surprises when the recession hit in 2008 was that an awful lot of people said, ah, oh, well, of course, the first thing that's going to go to the wall is going to be farmers' markets because they were perceived as being somewhat elitist, they were perceived as being more expensive. And, of course, the opposite happened. Instead of people deserting farmers' markets, more and more people went to them. And, you know, in, in the last eight to nine years, more and more of them have been established. There's a, certainly a proposal in Galway uh, with the planning authorities to create a new market over no less than 17,000 square feet, which is probably uh, the people in Galway trying to create something like the, the English market in Cork. So I think people who really spend foolishly um, in terms of not just food, but a lot of other things during the boom have actually kind of woken up and said, well, hang on a minute, you know, if I buy a local, a bottle of locally produced milk, let's say, for example, by Farmer X, he gets the money and the money stays in the zone and the money is good for our, our local economy. And I think that's a factor that has really struck home with an awful lot of people after the, the lunacy of the boom. Um, we've actually realized that if you want to build a, a strong economy, you have to start by building a strong local economy. And the principal local economy in any culture is always based on food. And it's, I think it's very interesting that Ballymaloo is focusing on that this year because it's not just important from a culinary sense, it's important from a cultural sense, and it's vitally important um, from an economic sense, particularly in places, for example, I've been living in West Cork for the last 25 years. And, you know, for places like us in remote regions, we have no industry. Uh, it's, it's the keystone of our tourism culture, really, to offer people local foods that keep the money in, in the local economy. So I'm delighted that obviously this is going to be um, a mainstay of, of Litfest this year. But it's also, if you like, in another sense, become a mainstay of food festivals, which are not just a celebration of, of food in a particular place, whether it's Dungarvan or Galway or Cavan. Um, it's a celebration of what people are producing and the fact that they're kind of building a growing and vibrant economy uh, in their own backyard. I mean, it is something that we've always been quite good at or traditionally we're good at. So, as you say, it's super to see people back kind of building local economies and, and investing in food and really fresh and good food again and thinking about where it's coming from. Can you just tell me a bit about what you yourself have in store for guests this year at LitFest as a speaker? Well, I mean, in LitFest, certainly I'm going to be talking, one of the things I'm going to be talking about actually is West Cork with... Uh, with David Putnam, with Lord Putnam, who's been a resident here and a very prominent figure um, in West Cork. And I'll be chairing a number of the sessions uh, in relation to the kind of sustainability and the food economics as well. I, I, as, as I mentioned, um, 
Sally is going to be talking to Claudia Roda. One other thing which I'm really looking forward to, of course, is one of the great champions of good food, of sustainability, uh, and one of the great thorns in the flesh of the very cynical food industries that we have throughout the world um, is the Scottish food writer Joanna Blythman, who's the author of um, many wonderful books which take a forensic uh, approach to exactly how mass-produced food uh, winds up on our shelves. So I'm going to be doing an interview with Joanna. Um, I've actually known her for, for many years. I met her um, almost 30 years ago at about 6am one morning at the fish market in Dublin uh, when she was writing a piece for a newspaper. And um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, to having that conversation with her because on the one hand, the interesting dichotomy about modern developed food cultures is we, we have a, a, a growing and ever stronger artisan and speciality sector, which is driving our markets and driving our restaurants. But on the other hand, the you know the, the the large scale food industries are ever more ingenious at at putting stuff on our shelves, which is really not very good for us, which is largely detrimental to our health, and which makes them en- enormous amounts of money. I mean, the most recent example of this probably is the whole free from section in food markets, which used to be, you know, half a shelf and is now a wall of products. Uh, the supermarkets love love that stuff because it's very heavily processed. And it's extremely expensive, and it's growing at an exponential rate. It's the fastest area of growth in uh, supermarkets and in food production. And I'm, I'd be very conscious, really, that you know that, that there's nothing behind it other than a lot of hype, often fueled by food writers, uh, I have to say. And uh, I think it's a it's a classic example of the cynicism of the food industry. So I'm looking forward, particularly with Joanna, to kind of trying to explore how this this dynamic area, uh, as far as the food industry is concerned, has actually been created and has come to occupy, you know, so much shelf space and also to dominate a lot of the discourse about modern food. Just hearing you talk there, John, about Claudia Roden, I too am an enormous fan of hers and I was recently in the Middle East and used Arabesque pretty much as my lonely planet. What is it about the food writing and literature of people like Joanna Blythman and uh, Claudia Roden that's very important to you? You know, when I sort of started off being a food writer, um, I think for very many people there are a number of landmark books that actually orientate you in in terms of helping you to decide what it is that you actually want to do. And for me, there was a generation of people like Jane Grigson, Elizabeth David, Richard Olney, and in particular Claudia Roda, uh, people whom we've kind of come to put under the label of scholar-cooks but I actually think scholar cooks is not a bad term, except that they didn't write in a scholarly way. And for me, the importance of, of, of people like Elizabeth David, or in particular Claudia Roda, is not just the recipe work that they did, but as I say, it's the, it's the anthropology that, that stood behind their work. In other words, they didn't just want to kind of give you recipes. They wanted to say the culture from which this food comes is comprised of these people and their attitudes and their culture and their history. And I think in particular with Claudia Rodin, she she wrote about her background in Egypt so brilliantly. She wrote about the culture of North African food. And she introduced that to us. I mean, before Claudia Rodin, you know, we didn't know anything about what people ate in North Africa. We had no concept of the riches of the cultures that she if you like, brought to our table. And the wonderful thing that she's done over a 50-year career is to keep on expanding her own 
take on different cuisines. In other words, she's looked at Jewish cuisine. She made, I think, one of the landmark uh, food series on television with, with, with the BBC for her book on Mediterranean cooking. Her book on Italian food is wonderful. Um, so, it, as I say, she, she, she doesn't just give you food. She doesn't just give you recipes. She, she gives you a whole culture and makes you want to, to understand it and to understand the background to it. And I think, you know, when you consider that she came out of the post-colonial world, her ability to, to represent the, the cuisines of the Arab nations, for me, is one of the foundational works of social anthropology of the 20th century. It's truly like transportative, I found, is that when you're, writing, when, you're reading the writing, when you're reading the writings of Claudia Roden, that there's just, exactly as you said, there's just more of a world. There's kind of, it's not just a bunch of recipes. It's really like fleshed out by, you know, a sensation of the whole world. And I remember reading hers first when she was talking about growing up in, in Egypt and then, you know, being moved to Paris at a very young age and kind of being lost and, and, and bringing her food with her and using it as a sense of identity. It just kind of really sucks you in. And I think you, you learn a lot more about just food in those things that you're right it's anthropological and it's sociological and it just gives you a beautiful snapshot into other cultures that we don't usually see yes I'm not, I mean I think there are writers who still continue in that vein obviously somebody who I think many people would see as somewhat of a successor to Claudia Rhoda who was Diana Henry does work like that but again the, the difference with Claudia was she was coming right out of that culture and yet she had this Parisian background as well she had this London background She's highly educated, um, but I but I agree with you absolutely. It's it's it transports you in the same way, you know. Another of my favourite food writers, the late Richard Olney. You only have to read two or three lines, and you're immediately in that market in Provence, you know. And it's the same with you know the best work by Elizabeth David. And when you consider, you know, Elizabeth David wrote her first book on Mediterranean food in 1950 when there was food rationing in England, when people ate powdered eggs. And, that was and here was this person writing about lemons and aubergines, you know. I mean, th- I don't think that extraordinary generation of writers, I don't think they get sufficient praise, really, for, for, for what they've done. Because for, certainly for people like me, they showed that food writing, which in many respects people sort of bracketed as just being women's work or just recipe writing. And, and, and they showed, actually, that, you know, important cultural discoveries and appreciation could be achieved through food, that you didn't just have to look at a a political history or a social history, but that in looking at food, you've got both the politics and the social history. And, um, And at the same time, you know, they wrote so beautifully. The prose is, is, is crystalline. It's immediate. It transports you. You're in the marketplace. You're in the souk. You're tasting that food when you're taking a boat trip up the Bosphorus. Just extraordinary. Um, thank you so much for joining us on With Relish. We've really enjoyed talking to you this morning. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Each week on With Relish, we'll be inviting someone who's made an impact on the Irish food industry in to speak with us on their life with food. For our first edition of In the Kitchen, we're delighted to be speaking to a woman who's long established herself as Dublin's Queen of Cakes. In recent months, however, Michelle Darmody has taken a step back from her role as owner of the Cake Café. She's set up a project called Our Table involving people in direct provision. Welcome, Michelle, to the show. Thank you. So, Michelle, can I ask you, first of all, how did the idea of Our Table come about? Um, The idea for Our Table came about when I had heard about the direct provision system in Ireland and I suppose was shocked and annoyed and really upset 
by what people have to go through when they seek asylum. So when you come to Ireland um, as an asylum seeker, you're put into a system and it's called direct provision. And in that system, you're I suppose they're holding centres, for want of a better word. You can't cook is one of the main things. I mean, there's a huge amount of issues with indirect provision, but the one that really resonated with me was food because I grew up in a family where food was absolutely at the core of of our daily life and the idea of a family growing up and have no access to the kitchen, no access to you know, the recipes that their grandmother, their mother, their father, their grandfather would have taught them uh, was kind of was very shocking, and this isn't just for six months or a year. It can be six years, seven years. Some people in the system for ten years. So, it's a very long term gap in people's lives. So, I'd heard about this and approached the Irish Refugee Council, and they introduced me to Ellie Kisumbe, and then myself, my friend Fiona Corbett became involved as well. So, at the beginning it was very small scale. We I just literally bought bags of vegetables <laughs> and we borrowed someone's kitchen and we started cooking and invited. It, it turned out to be mainly women. That wasn't necessarily the intention, but it turned out mainly women. And we just cooked, made recipes. Um, I learned loads <laughs> of new recipes um, from people. And it was very emotive and very, it was upsetting because some people hadn't cooked in so long or they hadn't and particularly hadn't had the opportunity to taste some real recipes from different parts of the world so we just ate cooked chatted and then out of that we decided to do something a bit more public to start bringing attention to the situation and to highlight it and this was be a bit more active about trying to change it so we set up a two-day event in the project art center in temple bar and it was, we were absolutely overwhelmed. We had about over three, four hundred people, I think, a day came through. It was just like queues of people. Um, and it was really interesting. I think people were empathetic about trying to show solidarity, but didn't know how, they had no outlet for it. So I suppose we kind of, I felt like we provided an outlet for people mm-hmm. who wanted to kind of go, God, this is crap. <laughs> this is really, really yeah. crap and not in our name. We want to try and change this. And doing that over food was a really nice conversation starter I think um, rather than placards you know on the street which I do think has its place but this was just a different way of getting into people's hearts and emotions and it worked and since then we've done quite a few different events cooking classes then we did a three-month pop-up in the Project Art Centre and different things have come about from it. Um, Ellie who I mentioned earlier is is I suppose now is probably the most active member and organising um, different events now coming up herself. You, you spoke to the fact that it was mostly women who came to the initial meetings and get-togethers. I think food and cooking for your family, and it is traditionally a female role in a lot of households around the world, it's something that absolutely everybody can identify with. The idea of sitting with your family, having a meal of mum's nicest thing that they make for the family that everybody's really into. And as you said, that sense of empathy that it can draw out that maybe a different sort of activism would not where just the idea of having that almost right to cook for your family, to mm-hmm. enjoy food with your family being taken away. And it's very human things. It's hard yeah. for whatever reason to be able to identify with somebody who's not from yeah. here who, who doesn't have the same experience that you do. We all do have a human food experience. Absolutely. And Definitely. And just bringing yeah. people around a table if you don't share a language, whereas you can share food together and there's Amazing. always smiles and you know and yeah. laughter and, and communication happens even if it's not in a linguistic yeah. way. Yeah. You know, people do definitely share and it breaks down so many barriers like we people from so many different parts of the world who at the beginning you know everyone's a little bit nervous and like like every group coming together at the beginning you're all a bit like oh hi 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 and then by the end of it everyone's like oh chop this do yeah, this yeah, throw, yeah. throw this yeah. in oh my god my rice is burning pull it off you know <laughs> so the communication and the chat that happened over cooking to me was was really energizing it was really really great it's such an amazing entry point into other cultures if i'm from somewhere in west africa and i'm meeting somebody from afghanistan for the first time maybe eating something from there is the first experience I'll ever have of that place it's a fascinating project really great 
Just walking you back a little bit, Michelle, to your background in food. What initially sparked your interest in food? Where did that come from? Family, I'd imagine. My parents both cooked a lot. My mom was avid baker every single morning. There was something being baked. Um, my dad uh, cooked, so it was kind of a nice combination between the sweet and the savoury. So definitely from a family background. And I suppose the importance of where food comes from was always very interesting to me. And the slow food movement, the produce and the provenance of produce was integral to anything I ever wanted to do with food. And when I, I was away a lot for a few years and coming back to Ireland and just wanting to create somewhere that promoted Irish food, we have such amazing artisan produce or, or not even artisan, just any kind of small producers here in the country that... Um, just it's just so uh, uh, nice to be able to celebrate them and to bring them onto a plate together. And can you tell me a bit about taking that leap and deciding to start your first venture? You know, becoming a business owner, a small mm. business owner is a huge undertaking and, you know, something that people almost always warn against. They say, really have your wits about you and be ready to go if, you, if you're going to do it. So what inspired um, you to take that leap? Probably a bit of naivety. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, healthy does it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose a determination to work for myself. Like I, I enjoy working really hard, but I do like control over my own time and to do something for myself rather than to, to slot into something that's already been done. I went to art college, so maybe it's a part of that. I, I think the education you get in art college is a really, really healthy form of education. It's a lot to do with kind of qualifying yourself and standing up for yourself and experimenting and changing new ideas and very open education. So I suppose maybe there's a little part of that as well, coming from that background helps in business. Maybe mm. not everyone would think that automatically. Well, it makes sense I mean, to me. it, it does make sense now that I think about it, but I would yeah. not have thought of art school as being like, Honing it, it's not an MBA. People. No, but like it definitely <laughs> gives Artistic you artistic MBA. Yeah, it definitely gave me the uh, ability to see things a little differently. And when mm. I wanted to open a business, I definitely kind of brought in the kind of design factor and the yeah. the visuals and um, how things looked and were presented. And I had a background in organising a lot of um, nightclubs and club events and all of that. I suppose everything kind of fed together. It was all yeah. kind of one interest, you know, in a way. Uh, we used to do a club called Powder Bubble and Alternative Miss Ireland, and these are kind of large scale over dramatic um like uh pageant style yeah. i suppose nightclubs and all the organization and the the kind of street smarts you kind of learn from yeah. that definitely feed into running a business too and what was the hardest thing about setting up the business i suppose the work the amount of physical work and the not escaping yeah. the, um you know it's always always with you when you run a small business the first two years were hell I, well, for one no, I'm not like okay that's probably too dramatic but the first two years are extremely hard work they always okay. will be I think anyone I say like unless you have this absolute determination for two years it's not for six months mm-hmm. you know you work so hard getting the place done and the tiles in and the plumber in and the electrician doesn't turn up and all of that stuff is done and then you just want to go and sleep and then you have to open up Actually the next the day job, yeah. and that's <laughs> when it starts so you're like yeah. so you just don't have that kind of like oh well, I'll just take a week now and yeah. relax and then maybe start making some cakes next week Relentless. so you're just yeah, yeah it yeah. is but then again it's you know it's it's you then it's it's your thing it's yours, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. and so yeah. after two years of slogging Mm. what kind of a level did you get to then with it like was it was it a very I suppose a pattern once you get a pattern and you know that certain times of the year are a bit quieter than others you don't go into a mad panic Mm. and freak out that nobody's ever going to walk through the door again that's just that's what Tuesday mornings in January are like and you know so I suppose you get more comfortable in yourself 
a good accountant, you know, good organization. Um, your margins and food are, it sounds so boring, but it's like Everything. so important, you yeah. know, just to have all of that. And it's the boring side of a business that people don't see when they come in and see you icing a cookie and chatting away to customers totally, and yeah. getting some free coffee. And You know yeah. what I mean? They think that's all. Really, but it's like, no, the ice machine burst at four in the morning and set off the alarm and then the police <laughs> called and, and the plumber couldn't make it out. And then oh, the coffee the machine f- flooded because, yeah. yeah, so all of that kind of side of stuff is just never yeah. kind of stops really <laughs> I'm not really selling it am I <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful I'm going to go and Can't do it right now good. Yes. Good. Yeah. That's good just focusing in a little bit on yourself and your experience of food and how you feel about food what's your kind of dream meal like not um, the go to thing but you know like what's the setting of your the nicest meal you've had or the one that you simple I suppose mm. simple good ingredients are always mm. Im- so important for me I mean some of my most memorable meals are just like literally I don't know in India fish just caught out of the sea that's put into a tandoor oven and you know that's I suppose that's a bit of a cliche isn't it but things like things like that you know just something really really simple good quality ingredients fresh um not necessarily the fanciest thing in the world but and also company obviously my husband's there and there's a whole day ahead of us and we've nothing to do that makes the meal much nicer (laughs) Um, than um you know Monday morning on the way to work and do you still cook to relax is it something that you still do absolutely yeah yeah cooking is definitely a switch off yeah, it really is. We're lucky in Dublin. There's there's access to great produce, and I live very near a fish shop, which I, you know things yeah. like that. You know, and um, where we are in the city is just very handy and easy for cooking. So we've got really yeah access to great food. So. Who would be your favourite suppliers of good quality produce? In Jenny, Jenny McNally, okay. definitely. Yeah, I'd say. we are. Um, Jenny. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know our like go to um, yeah. and Let's just they work. Yeah. The family are, are amazing. They work so hard. Don't a pat yeah. on the fire. Everyone yeah. like and um, their produce is impeccable like from everything on the stall their jams their mm-hmm. chutneys so just for anybody who doesn't news. know who the McNally's are McNally Organic Farm are uh, an organic farm in North County Dublin I think in Balbriggan mm-hmm. yeah. and they yes. have a market stall in uh, Temple Bar Market on Saturday mornings where you will find an array of the absolute the most beautiful um, array of produce in the world mm. just really really and uh, it's great to talk to them the whole family are involved in it and they are fluent in Vegetables. <laughs> and they're in Dunleary on Sundays. And they're in Dunleary on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're, yeah, so they're my yeah, go-to, yeah, definitely. The go-to guys. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, from the sublime to the ridiculous, I want to ask you now, but guilty pleasures. I mean, we all have them. I like McDonald's double cheeseburgers. I just said it. I, it's real. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of times a year, that happens. I microwave, um, I microwave a... a Frankfurter and roll it up in a piece of white bread and spread. Yeah, baby. So, like, that is <laughs> darkness. <laughs> You're speaking my language here. You know, we all enjoy the full broad yeah. range. Um, Michelle, do you have anything that you'd divulge with us oh, for I'm the trying to think of general really public? Bad. Go on. I know, absolute crisp addict. Is mm, that yeah. bad? That's oh, probably yeah. not that bad. It's good, bad. It? <laughs> yeah, like potatoes, potatoes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like a few times a day if possible. Oh, definitely, great. I'm always great. like, yeah, 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 my girl. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've started doing this thing recently where we try and sneak crisp sandwiches onto the menu at work. And if we just make our own crisps, then it's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. it's like being in Spain. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that we really enjoy. And I think the Cake Cafe always mm-hmm. touched on that a lot. The kind of, not even guilty pleasures, but just really enjoying your food, enjoying treats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, home you know? cooked, like home cooked food. I suppose for yeah. me, it's about recreating something from home. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's very important. And, and it doesn't always have to be kind of everything free. You know, it's mm-hmm. a little of, you know, it, no harm. A With a pinch of, of MSG. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a pinch of MSG. 
university. So what's the next year hold for you, Michelle? What's going on? I honestly don't have an answer, (laughs) (laughs) which is really scary and really nice. Um, I still write a lot. I still write for the Irish Examiner every week and find myself writing more. Um, I'm giving a lot of talks randomly in Ireland and and abroad Um, over the next few weeks. Seems to be festival season. And apart from that, I'm not sure I'm doing a master's at the moment up in NCAD um, called Art in the Contemporary World, which is a lot of theory and philosophy. Wow. So I'm really examining the crossover between art and food. And and I don't know, <laughs> the honest answer. Yeah. A quieter life. Yeah. A quieter yeah. life is, is, yeah, I really would like to take a year and just uh, reassess, I suppose. And Could you ever see yourself running a food business again? Do you think, are, um, is this a break or is this kind of yeah, winding I'd prefer not down to a quieter existence? To, yeah, I'd prefer not to maybe take responsibility for so many people I suppose um, if that makes mm. sense like when you run a small business it's impossible to kind of switch yourself off but also you're very aware that you know you've you know, nobody, 19, 20 staff and you're, you know you, you constantly have to make sure that they get put in the front and paid and it's just, just the responsibility and the kind of working with kind of large groups of people all the time I like to just stop that for you've a while. done it does yeah. that make yeah. sense yeah totally um, but yeah so just to take away a bit of responsibility just to take care of you know trying some new ideas yeah. and I don't know where it's going to go that's kind of that's <laughs> no one knows the romance no one knows right. I any suggestions any going. suggestions <laughs> <laughs> take it easy enjoy yeah. it <laughs> um, would you be able to tell us though if we can expect to see anything from our table again have we got a yeah I know well at the moment it's kind of um, Ellie has been down in Ballymaloo mm-hmm. um, who um, I mentioned Ellie before um, she's been down in Ballymaloo for three months which was brilliant um, Darina gave us a, a place on the course so she did an internship down there so everything was kind of on a hiatus for that and then I know Ellie's organised DIT are going to do training for about 20 people in direct vision on HACCP courses and so there's a few different things in in the the motion yeah exactly Um, our previous event was uh, Syrian cooking night which was just amazing and Kula who did a lot of baking for the pop-up we did in in the Project Arts Centre she just made the most stunning and beautiful stuff so that was really really great I just sat there open mouthed it's just so unusual to see things made so differently Yeah. Yeah. just absolutely differently she made this I don't know, like a pastry. She made a sugar syrup and melted mozzarella in it and stirred it, stirred it really Knefe. quickly. Knefe, yeah, 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 yeah. And then rolled mm. it out. And I just hadn't seen it being made before. Yeah. I'd eaten it away, but I hadn't seen it being made. And just so interesting and, yeah. and really, really lovely processes. And it was great. Uh, yeah. Really, really great. So, um, yeah, I, stuff like I had that my first Knefe experience not long ago as well. I was in Lebanon and Jordan in January. And mm. yeah, that was the, the strange sensation of eating like a hot, sweet cheese with pastry yeah. on top. Yeah. I was like, this uh, is incredible. Yeah. 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 So. And, and did you watch it being made? I it's did, yeah, so yeah. In, interesting. Enormous big trays, yeah. Like, yeah and just the stirring and yeah. stirring and stirring. It was great, and with loads of rose water, which is kind of an addiction of mine. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it was really, really nice. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure yeah. to have you on as our first guest in the kitchen on no uh, with relish. We're <laughs> delighted to have you, and wish you all the best with this amazing venture that yeah, you're working on you. at the moment. It's thank fabulous. You very much. Cheers. Great. Hi. Thanks, Mill. Thank you for listening in to episode one of With Relish. We'd like to thank all our guests for taking time out to come on with us. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're a bi-weekly podcast, so make sure to check out headstuff.org for our next show. You can listen and download our programmes from iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and all the usuals. If there's something in the food world you'd like us to delve into, make sure to let us know. You can contact us through our Twitter page, at With Relish Pod, or get in touch through the Headstuff Podcast Network.
This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.